0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your copy of God's Word out at this time and turn to Genesis chapter 15 as we continue our trek through Genesis. We're now 20 sermons in and uh, plugging away. We're almost caught up to where the numbers of sermons and chapters get caught up. I don't know if we'll ever get caught up to that or not, but we're working on it. So we will look at all of Genesis chapter 16. Uh, You'll hopefully throughout the sermon hear kind of the refrain of the song we just uh, sang and we'll sing again at the end of the service that this really is a, a, a very critical season in the life of Abram and Sarah to, as they wait and ask how long for the promise to happen. So this is Genesis chapter 16. We'll read the whole chapter here together. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived she looked with contempt on her mistress and sarai said to abram may the wrong done to me be on you i gave my servant to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived she looked on me with contempt may the lord judge between you and me but abram said to sarai behold your servant is in your power do to her as you please and then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Don't question the way that I pronounce the name of that well, that is exactly the way that it is pronounced in the Hebrew. It's just, that's that's, exactly what it means. That's that's exactly right. Reading through commentaries and a Scottish novelist once says this, in what he wrote in one of his sermons. He says in, in whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. The reality of pursuing the purposes of God, whatever man does without God, he's destined either to fail miserably or possibly to succeed even more miserably as he is marched forward without God. Our text for this morning is this narrative section that's pretty straightforward, really, when you try to understand what's happening here. It's not hard to get what the family dynamics, the difficulties, the conflict that has arisen here. It's an episode of man working apart from and succeeding at what his job was, succeeding and finding more misery than even the failure was producing. And we've heard from the past several weeks this promise to God, or from God to Abram, right? He is going to have offspring, a descendant. He's going to have land. There's this blessing. And, and in fact, just last week, right, he says, look out at the stars and number them. And so many, if you could count them, you could count the number of your descendants. This idea of this innumerable amount of descendants going to come from Abram. And you would expect it, and they would have expected it to be coming from out of the natural marriage that Abram had, that he and Sarah, or Sarai, Sarah, Sarah's name changed to Sarah here in the next week or two, uh, they're going to have this child of promise, this this baby that God has spoken of. But the this is not happening, right? We've heard over and over again this promise, but we when we are first introduced to Sarah, how does the Scriptures introduce Sarah to us, right? You go back to chapter 11, right before chapter 12 starts off with, there's a very specific description about Sarah. Verse 30 of chapter 11. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. This is the, this is the scriptures are making a point. Sarah is without child. She's unable to conceive. And now 10 years, we learn right from our text this morning, 10 years into being into this promised land, she yet remains barren, childless. She's not able to have offspring. And so the promise, though, is still hanging out there. God has spoken. This is what I'm going to do for you. But they don't see it happening. And out of frustration or they're asking how long, out of the desire to see the promises of God fulfilled, you could even say maybe they're trying to do a good thing. They take this tactic of um, of taking Hagar, who is Sarai's handmaiden, and giving her to Abram as a wife. Now, we look at that and we think, good night, what in the world's going on? That actually was a, a culturally accepted practice. Uh, if we see it more, As we read through the book of Genesis, we will see it occur more in the book of Genesis. Never does it really produce great <laughs> results. I mean, the, the children are often accepted and blessed by God, but it's uh, polygamy as it exists in Scripture is never really this great thing that happens. It is there, but it isn't like this is God's original design for things to happen this way. This is they're really looking at their culture around them and saying, okay, this is a way that we can produce an offspring. Maybe this would be a great way to go about it. Let's chase after that. Let's, you know, I'm not sure the promises of God are are really quite all that they seem to be, and let's pursue this avenue instead. And so they seek to bring about their perceived good through their own pursuits and their own methods, essentially. And this is what produces Ishmael. So right up front, the big idea for this morning is simply this. There is no firmer foundation for the people of God than the promises of God. There is no firmer foundation for the people of God than the promises of God. And Abram and Sarai, they, they have legitimate promises from God, right, to, to have this heir. And God has doubled down and mentioned it over and over again, these promises to them. And yet there is still this struggle in the people of God, being Abram and Sarai. There's still this struggle in the people of God, thinking that maybe there's a better way to get what they want than to wait upon God and what He wants to do. Maybe there's a better way to get what God has promised me. Maybe the, the joy of that my future and, and all this promise, maybe there's a better way to get at it. And so Sarah, Sarai, convinced of the attractiveness of this idea from the world, she convinces Abram to take Hagar and to bear a child through her. And Abram, seeing the logic of this, like, well, that would probably work. Uh, okay, I guess we'll give it a shot. And this is what happens, and that's me, that's not in the text, that's me (laughs) personalizing, I guess, Abram a little bit. But they go ahead with this plan. Now, really, there's not, it it makes sense. Hagar then becomes uh, pregnant with Abram's child, begins to look down upon Sarai. Sarai has another uh, genius idea, she's being nasty to me, she's disrespecting me. Abram's like, I don't know, she's yours, you deal with her and starts mistreating her and Hagar runs off where she's met by this figure, the angel of the Lord. This is the first time in our, in our Bibles we encounter this figure, the angel of the Lord, who is most likely, I mean, it's a, it's a Christophany of some type. This is likely because he is given in such description of basically being God. Uh, there's really no way to read around this, that this is somehow a pre-incarnate a manifestation of God in the flesh. The angel of the Lord shows up and speaks, maybe not in the flesh, but he is there. It's a Christophany is kind of the official, the fun theological term, that the angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to Hagar. Now, Hagar learns two really incredible things about the character of God in this chapter. I don't think they're the main point, but they're certainly there. And and what she, two really incredible things that she hears from God is the first one is the giving of the the child's name to be Ishmael. Ishmael means the God who hears. And so while she is out and she, she, it's right there in the text that it says this, right? Um, You shall name, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord has heard your affliction. And so one of the incredible things that she has heard is that is that this or that she discovers here about God is that God is a God who hears the cries of the downcast. This is hugely important. as we go through the rest of Scripture, and we see Jesus show up on the scene and who were the ones that get his ear the most? It is not the, those who think they're righteous, religious, whatever. It is the downcast. It is the humbled that God has the ear for. And here is this maidservant who we could talk about all the social difficulties that there would be in being a, a handmaiden who is given to a man then bears his child and then, and then is abused and then runs away. And she's kind of being discarded as a human being even. And this is the one whom God hears. That the person that you would think doesn't deserve to be listened to is getting disregarded and, and and abused and 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 all these abuses towards this person, this is the one that God hears. God is a God who hears the cries of the downcast. He is a God who hears no matter how low you may think you are getting, no matter how difficult life may be, no matter how set aside you may feel by your family, by your friends, by your culture, by your community, by whoever, God is a God who hears. That's a a hugely important reality to learn about this God. He is a God who hears the cries of the downcast. We'll see that theme played out over and over again through Scripture as the people of God are oppressed and are downcast and they cry out. He's a God who hears His people and He hears the cries of the downcast. But secondly, Hagar does this incredible thing where she gives God almost a new name. I mean, she's she's saying, I'm gonna call you the God of seeing. So she called the name of the Lord, verse 13, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Now there's a couple of possible readings of that description. Either He is the God who is seen because she has met with the angel of the Lord. She's seen Him. Like this God exists. Like it isn't a God of my imagination. This is the God of seeing, like I have met with the angel of the Lord. He has spoken to me. He has known me. He has heard my cries. He is the God of seeing. And that's a, I think that's a legitimate way to read that he is a God of seeing in that she has seen him. But it may be more that he is a God who sees. Not only is he a God who has heard her, but he's a God who sees her. He knows her, he understands her, like he's a God who comprehends, he is a God who sees. And I think both are probably legitimate ways to read this description, that he is a God who is seen. It leads to a confidence that God as one, is one who really is there. He's not some imaginary being, but one who is seen as she has seen him. But the second reading I think is backed up even more by this statement, that he is a God who sees her. Truly I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who sees me. (laughs) And so there's this incredible truth about God is that not only is he a God who hears the cries of the downcast, but he is a God who sees and knows nothing is hidden from him. He is the God who sees. He is the both of these truths, truths about God are huge in their implications. So what's further, we know that this revelation of God, I mean, what gives extra credibility to this naming of him Ishmael, the God who hears and the God who sees me, is that right here at the end of the chapter, Hagar does go home, she bears the son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. She gets home, she relays this story to Abram, and Abram hears the story and receives it, essentially his gospel truth, and he names the kid Ishmael as Hagar had been told to do. It's incredible that this account that she shares with Abraham is received as an account that is true. This is a God who hears. This is a God who sees, because we are going to listen to him and name this child Ishmael. God is a God who sees and hears, and Abraham concurs. Now. It would be fun, and we'll do this in the future, talking about all the trouble that does result from Ishmael. And the, the line that comes, the Ishmaelites, we will see a lot of them as we continue reading in our scripture. He's the one through this whole category of people are going to come through, and they're going to cause a whole bunch of difficulties for the people of God going forward uh, for the conceivable, perceivable future. Uh, This whole category of of Ishmaelites. So, but because we're going to spend a lot of time as we read on through Genesis, I'm not going to spend a lot of time and just, you know, we have the description of him. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. Lots of conflict over this man, Ishmael. So I don't want to spend a bunch of time looking forward to those moments, but just going to let them live where they live in the narrative. So with the remaining time, that's chapter 16. Okay, that's, you got it, but I had to walk through it. There it is. This is what happens in the narrative. He's the God who sees. He's the God who hears. How, how can this strange event in the life of Abram and Sarai say anything to us today other than just the details of, well, that's a weird thing they did. <laughs> like, okay, well, I guess that's, um, I can now pass the multiple choice test when we do Bible trivia of who is the name of the lady who Abram fathered Ishmael. Hagar, okay, I can now answer the quiz, right? Is that the point? Is this just pure narrative? And like, here's the sequence of events. Okay, isn't that interesting? Is that all that there is? Or is there anything other than just the details of the account to look at? And one of the principles of hermeneutic, good hermeneutics, Bible interpretation is that you want to, as best as you can, see the text as the original audience would have seen it? So I know we're all sitting here in 2023. Yes, I turned 44. Okay, 20, 23. and we're all. And so this is thousands of years ago. But Moses, as the people of God, have escaped out of Egypt, and they are they are getting this revelation. They're understanding who God is. What does this? What does this passage speak to them as they're wandering around in the wilderness? What, is this just, okay, here's our family history. Here's the Ishmaelites who are still living in Canaan that we're going to have to go after, after 400 years and, and take over. Is that all this is doing, or is it communicating something meaningful to the, even the original audience? And if we can get to that kernel of truth, Would that kernel of truth still exist today for the people of God as we sit here through faith in Jesus Christ as God's people? And I think the answer is yes. What should they do as they're in the wilderness wandering around reading and thinking on God's history? What should they do? They should patiently wait for their God to fulfill His promises. They should patiently wait For their God to fulfill His promises. And though they may be tempted to take several actions and to work at various remedies to solve their problems by their own hands, and you'll get that right as you read the book of Joshua, and you see all these times that they go to try to take the promised lands, and they, they don't inquire of God, and they try to do it by their own strength. And Israel's history is filled with all these moments of using the ark inappropriately to try to win a battle and having it fail and trying to achieve things by their own hands, what should they be doing instead? They should be remembering God's promises to them and faithfully waiting and trusting in Him. Though they may be tempted to take all these actions, they should let this event, Sarai and Hagar, as an event to encourage them and to serve as a warning to them that there is no surer foundation, right? Big idea. There is no surer foundation for the people of God than the promises of God. What he has said he will do, there is no safer place to bank your life upon than what God has promised to do. So that's why I've highlighted that as the big idea for today. I think it's true in this text throughout the history of the people of God. One commentator says this, the lesson would be clear for Sarai, Abram and Hagar, for Israel and for us today. Trust God's word and patiently wait for his promises. Foolishly to adopt worldly customs and expedients will only complicate matters and bring greater tensions. You know, in the text, as you're reading through here, you'll notice there's this very reasonable and attractive remedy to the problems Abram and Sarai saw. I mean, and, and you can get, if you could put yourself back in their context, you could see how Hagar is actually like, oh, it's that, I kind of see how that would logically make sense. I mean, this is, this is an avenue that we can pursue. And there are echoes of Adam and Eve in the garden here. Remember, Eve takes the apple and she looks at it and sees that it's desirable and good to eat. And she has this, this perception, hey, this looks okay. I mean, though God has promised something different and commanded something different, there's this attractiveness to what they want to do. There's an attractiveness to disobeying God and following her own way. And there's an echo of that. Sarai looks and sees, and then she turns to her husband, right? And she says, hey, let's go this way. And the man says, well, oh, okay, sounds all let right. right. Let's, let's go ahead and just follow this suggestion despite the promises of God. What do we learn from this? Your enemy, the world around you, and your own sinful desires will have no problem putting solutions before your eyes to contradict or replace the promises of God for you. Your enemy, the world around you, and your own sinful desires will have no problem putting solutions before your eyes. You'll have no trouble finding a voice to confirm you to pursue what you want to pursue. (laughs) Satan is more than willing and ready that if there's an avenue that you want to pursue, if there's a direction you want to take, you can find an affirming voice. You don't actually have to even look that long. Probably a three second Google search will give you some sort of affirmation to pursue whatever avenue you want to pursue. If you want to doubt God's goodness towards you, you'll have no problem finding voices to give you something else to run towards. When we have a desired outcome, what voices will we listen to? What voices will we trust? Are they true voices? That is the question. Will they actually deliver? So while I was thinking on this sermon, and, and you know, I had the, the couple of weeks to work on it here, and um, one of my good friends uh, got a kind of a, got, got some bad news. Uh, Maybe not many of you know my blind friend. Uh, I hate to just call him that, but he is blind. And so you probably remember, I've got this blind friend. Uh, good friend, have been friends probably since just after Joel was born nine years. When he was a teenager, he got a benign tumor and, and it uh, they had to operate on it and remove it and, and had to take out so much of his brain that eventually his he lost his eyesight. And he can't, he also, when you go out to eat with him, he can't taste anything, he lost all his olfactory senses so he can't smell anything, he can't really taste anything, he can't see anything. And he's lived this way now for oh, 30, close to 30 years now, uh, yeah. So he, in the middle of the night a few weeks ago, has an incredible pain in his head again, wakes up, calls the ER, it's, it's, it's so bad, he, he needs help getting this pain under control. Uh, finally does good get under control, they do an MRI, they say, we need you to go to Iowa City, Uh, we think something's growing again and and need to have it looked at. So he goes to Iowa City while we're on vacation. Uh, I'm at Target shopping for endless things we don't need. And uh, (laughs) get this call from my friend and and they'd read the MRI. And and in fact, another benign tumor, it's not a cancerous tumor. It's just a weird, whatever, benign tumor growing. And this time they need to remove it or he's going to have a stroke and die, basically. And he's going to lose all of his hearing in his right ear. Likely, we'll pray that he doesn't, but he's likely going to lose all his hearing in his right ear, which will leave him with basically the, the sense of touch and 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 hear out of his left ear. And and I'm I'm listening to this and and thinking through Sarah and Hagar, and I'm like, and I and I I didn't I didn't get it at first. Like I, I I'm I'm very uh, slow in many regards, and I, I didn't understand that until I was got this call from him, and, and I'm burdened to, how do I encourage this guy, right? How do we encourage one another when things really are bad? This He believes in Jesus. I should share that part. It's probably the most important detail about my friend. He absolutely repented of his sins, trusting in Jesus. He is saved. He loves Jesus. How do you encourage, because you, you want to be able to say, hey, things are going to be okay. <laughs> you'll probably come through it. But, you know, I mean, honestly, it's a very, very dark time. Chances are high that he'll keep the hearing in his other ear, but I just want to be encouragement. And so then what do we, how do we encourage one another at, when in moments like this? And I think in God's providence, these, uh, I don't know, I tend to see that kind of everywhere, but I think in God's providence, he had me in in Sarai and in Hagar and Abram at this moment because, um it forces us to deal honestly and brutally with the question of where are we placing our trust? While there's great disappointment in the path that Sarah and Hagar and Abram take, while there's great disappointment in Abram and Sarah's path, there's great encouragement there because what we know is that God will ultimately fulfill his promise to Abram. He will have a child named Isaac, spoiler alert, <laughs> he, he will, Abe, Sarah will become pregnant and will bear a child named Isaac and God's promises will flow through that descendant. God will make good on his promises. We learn that efforts from our own hands pursuing the things of this world produce nothing but frustration, but that faith and patience and the promises of God do not fail. But now we run into a further problem. Because... If, if you've heard this, we need to have a, if you, if, you, if you don't agree with this statement, we need to have a talk. But none of us have seen the angel of the Lord and had a conversation with God with a specific promise of you are going to have this thing happen in your life. Abram is a very special, and there are a few characters like this in our scriptures, but it is not the widespread reality that each one of us go out on a walk in the afternoon and all of a sudden God shows up and says, hey, by the way, this is what I'm going to do in your life here's my promise to you. You can bank on it. We don't have that. We don't have that. We don't have specific things from on high that God has appeared and spoken to us privately and individually. But this does not mean we are without promises. This does not mean we are without promises. The Bible promises us many things. It gives us certainties, about God, who he is, and what he is doing. And there is no sure footing, though you, we do not have necessarily from on high the word, the promise from God to us as he appears to us as the angel of the Lord. God has spoken to us in his word, spoken to us, to us through his son, that we might have very sure promises. So just to close, let look at, think of a few of these. I was going through like what promises was I going to share with my friend, and and I, I skipped over this, but at some level, this may be too simple and too elementary for, for a lot of you really highly educated and, and you know very sanctified Christian people. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Does if that falls on you empty, you need to do some business with Jesus. You need to do some business with God because when I talk to my blind friend and I'm trying to encourage him when he's got this serious medical issue going on in his life, the encouragement is but because of your faith in Christ, even if this um, tumor at some point takes your mortal life, you will not perish you will live forever in the light of the presence of your Savior because of what Christ has done for you. And there is no surer promise, no matter what doctor can tell him of what he can do to heal him in this mortal life, there is no surer promise than words spoken by a resurrected from the dead man who promises that everyone who believes in him will never perish but will have everlasting life. The world tells us so much to get, to get our goods now. I think of a promise like Matthew chapter six. Remember we went through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus talks there about our treasures kept in heaven. And he says, don't, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth breaks in, where rust steal, rust corrodes and the thief breaks in and steals. Don't store up for yourself things here on this earth, but store up for yourself at treasures in heaven where moth does not destroy, where rust does not corrode, where the thief does not break in and steal. That Jesus is encouraging us, promising something us much better than the things of this life, so, so much better. He tells us that the things of this world, no matter how great our accumulation of them, they will fade away, they will rot. But the things of God, Faithfulness to Him, obedience to Him, righteousness—all of these things accumulate for us a never-fading treasure. A couple of older acquaintances, um, man and man and wife, and she she has dementia; and it's getting pretty advanced in years. They're both believers as well, love Jesus. Um, but but you know, if you've gone to people with dementia, with Alzheimer's, it, it get, they sometimes will get violent towards at some point. And she's beginning to get angry and, and, and yelling a lot. And this man who's served Jesus as faithfully as he knew how to throughout his life is, is trying to minister to his wife. He's trying to love his bride as Christ loved the church. He's actually an incredible example of faithfulness of Jesus to serve his bride by the giving of himself. And so he's serving his wife and serving in his wife and she's, and she's deteriorating and deteriorating and deteriorating in front of him. What hope can you give in this life to to, weigh, to to give encouragement and hope and peace in a moment like that? Things are not going to get better for her. They're advanced in age. Where does their hope lie? What firm foundation can they bank their lives upon? It is because he can bank his life upon the promises that by being faithful to his wife, by serving her sacrificially, that he is storing up for himself treasures in heaven, that though this world may fade away right in front of him, there is a never fading treasure kept for the people of God with their Savior that one day they will enjoy in his presence forever. I think of Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We chase so many stupid pleasures and, and succeed at getting all many of them and end up miserably in our succeeding of getting things that don't matter. We were at, I got it, we were at Osage Beach and um, eating at this place called Neon Taco, which we love, had a mahi uh, salad bowl, it was so good. And we're sitting on and, and these places they're they're on the water right so you can see all these boats come up and park to get out and, and have their meals and this I don't know quarter of a million dollar yacht I don't know it was nice maybe half a million, it was a really nice yacht it's got the whole you can go downstairs you can sleep you can stay on it you can live on this boat pulls up and they get out and it's two very fit uh, prime of their life uh, young young man and young woman you can tell they're at you know they're having fun they're out. What could be a better dream than to be out when you're, you know, you're very healthy, very fit body with your, with your significant others and they're very healthy, very fit body, but everything's going great in this very expensive boat, just out going around to eat and shop and whatever. And they get out and they're walking towards the restaurant restaurant, and you can tell they are not having fun. <laughs> Something happened to the parking of that boat or throughout the day, or something, that you're like, I, I do not have that yacht, and I'm here with my two kids, and I'm 44 at this point, and whatever, and everything's breaking down, but, you know, I'm here, and I'm having way more fun <laughs> than they are. But, but but we get told this lie that there's something to chase in this life, that there's something here that we can grab hold of that will make the difference. And the script, promise from Scripture is that you want pleasures forevermore, you know where they're found? at His right hand, in His presence, with the God who made you and who will redeem you through faith in Jesus Christ. If you would look, turn away from your sin and look to Christ, you are adopted into His family, set at His right hand as a child to be given this promise that in His presence, there is fullness of joy. There is no more greater joy. There is no greater joy to be found in this life than the one promised to us that is found in our Father through the work of Jesus Christ. We got tons more we could look at. The promised return is that we're going to sing this how long song again, speaking of the promised return of our Savior. That there in 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage of the return of Christ and that it talks about the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive who are left and remaining still here when Christ returns will be caught up and we will meet with we meet our savior and it says what and we will be with him forever therefore encourage one another with those words <laughs> that though life is, may have all sorts of dark clouds, though life may go great at times, though life may just be kind of normal and mundane and boring at times. The hope is not found here. The hope is found in a Savior who has died to redeem us so that when we trust in Him, we are given this eternal hope, this eternal future, this eternal fullness of joy in His presence. This truth is for moments when life turns upside down, when the terrible phone call comes, when the terrible diagnosis is given, when dark clouds of trouble fill the horizon, there is no surer foundation than the, for the people of God than the promises of God. When times when life is good, when there are no incredible difficulties, when it's just that you're on vacation, you're just having a good time, whatever, you're having a good week, a good day or whatever, the promises of God liberate us from trying to put too much pressure on the day to satisfy us. I can enjoy... I can enjoy this day with all of you as a good day because I don't, we don't need this to be everything. It can just be a good day with the family of God. I'm not putting all of my chips and I need this to satisfy me. Jesus is my eternal joy. And so it liberates you to enjoy the good things of life in their proper place. And it also empowers you and encourages you for those moments when life isn't a good day or a terrible day, it's just a day. It's just a gray day. Just that same routine, get up early, do these things, go to work, come home, do these things. Before you know it, it's past bedtime. Just a gray day. God will liberate when repetition gets so consuming, we can remember the great promises of God like found in Psalm 35, which says, says, befriend faithfulness. Writer of Hebrews writes this, says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There is no surer foundation for the people of God than the promises of God to anchor our lives into. Let's pray. God, give us eyes and ears to see and hear, your promises to us, if there's any heart in this place this morning who isn't sure that your promises are to them, Father, I pray that they would hear the call right now this morning that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.